Okay, alright, I understand, I know. I say this a lot, but gosh darn it, it's true. The Bible is so cool, dude. It is so, so cool. And I really hope in this episode that I do a good job at showing you how cool the Bible is. A, a lot of what Bible study is, at least for me, is like detective work where you know you're you're piecing little clues of the puzzle here and there and you're finding them in various places that seem to have no correlation but then you find out that the these texts they're actually communicating with each other and when you find that connection it just it blows your mind and so look today is no different we are getting into the second part of the armor of god and in last episode, we discussed the who and why regarding God's armor. Who is it for? Why do we need it? And today we're going to discuss the what and the how. What, what is it? And how are we supposed to obtain it? And look, there's a lot to cover. So let's just hop straight into this. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 going through verses 13 all the way down to 17, like we always do. Let's just read through it, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. All right, so like we always do, let's just break this down verse by verse. Once again, verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So last episode, we discussed verse 10, and we discussed the reason why we need the armor of God. And Paul tells us that, hey, the devil will be devising schemes against God's people, schemes that aim to coerce, consume, and destroy us. And Paul makes it clear that our fight is not against other human beings, evil as they may be, but our fight is actually against the spiritual powers of darkness. You know, those, those powers that corrupt human thinking and have ruled unjustly. And we discussed that in, in a lot greater detail. And Paul reiterates this message here in verse 13, reminding us one more time that we absolutely need God's armor. We need his strength because there comes a day that is in the future, but also it's here now. There comes a day where it's filled with evil and that evil wants to take you down. So. We need supplementation from God in order to stand firm as believers. So let's hop straight into the armor. Paul is about to give us a breakdown of the various pieces of armor. Let's just read through it again. Verse 14 through 17, Paul says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So we, we have this armor, right? We have the belt of truth. 
the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of gospel peace, the shield of faith, helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. Now, if if you're looking for a breakdown of the deeper meaning of the aspects of God's armor, uh, you may leave this episode underwhelmed. Uh, I'm not going to be going through each facet of the armor and going through various metaphors and reasons as to why, you know, the the truth part of the armor is the belt because the belt upholds our pants and truth upholds us. <laughs> I'm not going to be going through it in that aspect because oddly enough, my interest in this passage, at least for the purpose of this episode, is not to break down the armor piece by piece. And here's why. As we will discover, the armor and the aspects of the armor play into the theme that Paul has been harping on throughout this entire letter. And that theme is putting away your old self and putting on your new self, stepping away from the darkness and stepping into the light. This is it's this through line theme that Paul has throughout this entire letter that before Christ, we were in darkness and sin. And in Christ, we're in light and truth. And we take off our old self and we put on our new self. So there is this change that happens when we put on our new self and it's rooted in Jesus. And this change is is not only limited to our status of salvation or our membership into God's family. There's actually something else that comes with putting on our new self and walking with Christ. And what we're going to learn today is that the putting on of our new self directly relates to the armor of God. And so I want to discover that with you in this episode. And our journey is going to start and mainly stay in the book of Isaiah. And the reason why we're going to Isaiah is because this is actually where Paul is pulling his armor of God imagery from. It's scattered all throughout Isaiah's writings. We see bits and pieces of the divine armor of the messianic king. So let's take a look at these passages and and let's keep a, a keen eye out for these pieces of armor. One of the first ones we find is here in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 5. This is what Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, many of you may already know or have uh, recognized in reading this that Isaiah 11 is a prophecy about Israel's hoped-for Messiah. The the Messiah throughout the Old Testament is this king-like savior figure who would free Israel and bring peace and judgment to the earth and establish his kingdom. And this hoped-for Messiah is is Jesus Christ. The the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. The word Christ is a title. It comes from the Greek word Christos, which means Messiah. So quite literally, the title that we give to Jesus is Jesus Messiah or Messiah Jesus. 
And Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 12, he explicitly points out that Jesus is this expected Messiah in Isaiah 11, because in Romans 15, verse 12, Paul quotes this passage to link Jesus as being the shoot from the stump of Jesse. So the the messianic king is going to be coming from the line of David. That's what Isaiah is saying. So anyways, notice that in Isaiah's messianic figure here in chapter 11, this messiah figure is said to have a belt of righteousness and faithfulness or truth. And some of your translations probably say that it's a belt of faithfulness instead of truth. And you may be thinking, well, Paul said in Ephesians 6 that we put on the belt of truth, not faithfulness. So what's going on? Well, interestingly enough, if we look at Isaiah 11 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the word faithfulness that we get in English is actually translated with the Greek word for truth, the very same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 to describe the belt of truth. So, both here in Isaiah 11 and in Ephesians 6, the messianic figure is equipped with this belt of truth. And this Messiah figure is wearing a part of the armor of God. Very interesting. Let's look at another passage in Isaiah. This is Isaiah 59, verse 16 through 17. It says, The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. So here is another beautiful example and a more explicit example that adds another piece to this messianic portrait that Isaiah is building up. We're told that God himself took up arms to fight for justice because he saw that there was no human who was fighting for justice or doing anything to intercede. So God says, I'll do it myself. And in doing so, God equips himself with this breastplate of righteousness and this helmet of salvation. As we will see later on, when Jesus gets tied to this messianic profile, along with the armor that he wears in Isaiah 59, this acts as an explicit example of Jesus being God. That, that's one of the things that um, people who deny the divinity of Jesus or the, the Trinity often say that, oh, you know, Scripture never says that Jesus is God. And this is just one of the examples that if you understand the Bible and what it's saying, this is an explicit example that this Messiah figure, who is Jesus, is said to be the one to intercede, to bring about justice and salvation. And we're told that God himself is the one who, who acts on behalf. And so they are, they're, they're tied together. Let's look at another one. Isaiah 49, verse 1 through 2 says, Listen to me, you islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. And he has also made me a sharpened arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. Dude, I love Isaiah, and I love the Messianic prophecies. We'll have to do a study through Isaiah at some point. It, man, that, that will take us years. <laughs> but, but anyways, 
we have yet another piece to this messianic portrait. And this time, instead of a piece of armor, this Messiah figure is given a weapon. (laughs) He's given a weapon to wield. And we're told that this weapon is a sharp sword. And this sharp sword is his mouth. It's the mouth of the Messiah that is this sword. And the words that he is to speak will ultimately be a weapon that he can wield. And you can see how Paul is integrating all of this theology into his letter because he calls out the sword of the Spirit as the Word of God. Like, isn't that, isn't that so cool? The, the weapon of the future Messiah that Isaiah is looking forward to is said to be a sword that is his mouth, the words that he speaks. And Paul says that the sword is the Word of God. And look, it keeps going further. The Bible is talking to each other in all these various places because in John's gospel, in the very first chapter, in the very first words, he tells us that in the beginning was, guess what? The Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And ultimately, that Word became flesh. You see how all of this is tying together. It's from the mouth of this expected Messiah in Isaiah that his weapon will be his sword. And his weapon that is his sword is connected to his mouth and the words that he speaks. And Paul says, guess what? The sword of the spirit that you will be equipped with as the church is actually the word of God. And then John tells us that the word of God is actually Jesus himself. Jesus, who is the word, is is the logos. The Greek word for word is logos. And logos is the, the transcendent divine reason, the universal unchanging truth. Jesus is the ultimate word of God, which is the sword that the Messiah is equipped with. I mean, dude, uh, the Bible is so cool. The Bible is so, so cool. Let's keep going. I'm getting too excited. Isaiah 52, verse 7. Here's another one. He says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation who says to Zion, your God reigns. Here is yet another piece, and this time, the one who brings this good news, this gospel message, because that's what the gospel literally means is good news, the one who brings this message walks upon the mountains. And I don't know if you remember some episodes back where we talked about the importance of mountain imagery in the Old Testament and how that is linked to God. Because in ancient understanding, the mountains is where the divine rested upon. We hear of Mount Zion, and we know from the Exodus story that God's presence rested upon Mount Sinai. And this is way too much to cover with the time that we have left, but if you haven't listened to that episode, it's called God's Mountain and Gnosticism. And it was back when we were covering Ephesians 4. Uh, from my understanding, to understand fully what Isaiah 52 verse 7 is saying here, we need to first understand the importance of the mountain imagery and and God and, and where God reigns in the view of the Hebrew Bible. But anyways, this messenger of peace and salvation and good news is walking upon the mountains. And this clues us into the fact that this isn't just any regular person. This This is somebody who 
is very, very close to God. And we can also get this from other context clues because this messenger, this person, not only is walking upon the mountains, the dwelling place of God, but he also is bringing news from God. He's bringing peace from God. He's bringing happiness from God. He's bringing salvation from God. So with that in mind, this messenger who is walking about, when we look back to what Paul says about the feet and what they bring in Ephesians 6, we start to see some more similarities because Paul states that we are to uh, put on our shoes is kind of the more standard English phrase, but more literally it's we are to bind up or put on the gospel of peace upon our feet. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? And Isaiah tells us here that this coming messenger from the mountain where God dwells will come with a message of gospel, of good news and peace. So the shoes, the binding up that Paul tells us to do as a part of the armor of God is the very thing that this messenger who was in God's dwelling place brings down to us with the feet, with his feet. He's bringing good news. Are you starting to see what Paul is doing and how he's incorporating this messianic profile here? We got one more piece of the armor left that is not yet covered, and it's the shield. Now, Isaiah doesn't mention a shield in the messianic profile. However, all throughout the Old Testament, we get countless imagery of God being a shield for his people. Let's just read a few. Psalm 119 in verse 114, he says, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Psalm 3 verse 3 says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Proverbs 30 verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. And I could go on and on, but you get the point. God himself is depicted as our shield. And Paul likens that shield to our faith, right? The shield of faith. And this makes perfect sense with the Old Testament writings where we're told that God is a shield to those who follow him, to those who put their faith in him. So we understand now that Paul isn't just making up the armor of God, right? He's not just sitting there going... Let me just let me just find some armor of some soldiers I see and just kind of add some religious adjectives to them to make this sound good. What what Paul is doing is he's intentionally pulling from the Hebrew Bible, from his scriptures. But I think we need to ask the question, what is Paul's ultimate goal with telling us about God's armor? Like what is he wanting us to see? How is he wanting us to apply this? And the Old Testament, and Isaiah in particular, spent this time building this portrait of the Messiah. And Isaiah is giving us pieces to this messianic portrait that, when you put them all together, creates this vivid picture of what the Messiah is to be and how the Messiah is going to look. The portrait that Isaiah gives is one of a messianic warrior king decked out in divine armor, right? He has a truth like a belt, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of salvation, sword that comes from his mouth, shoes that bring good news and peace, and a shield of faith in God. 
And it's clear from this messianic portrait alone that this expected Messiah, his battle is not to be waged in an earthly sense. It's not to be waged against flesh and blood. Are you picking up what's going on here? Because if this Messiah's battle was to be done against flesh and blood, if it was to be done in a physical sense, then his armor would have been described in physical terms, like a breastplate of steel and a belt of leather and a, and a helmet of, of steel. It would have been described in physical terms. And this is the mistake that many Israelites made when they were reading these prophecies in real time and hoping for a messianic king. They thought that this king would enact physical justice on their enemies. And look, Scripture isn't trying to hide anything. The message is crystal clear. When you just look at the text, the, the Messiah is decked out in spiritual armor. He doesn't have a breastplate of silver. He has a breastplate of righteousness. He doesn't have a sword of sharpened steel. He has a sword from his mouth. You, you, you get the point. And being the good Pharisee that Paul was, he understands all of this. And he informs us that just like our Messiah's battle is not against flesh and blood, well, guess what? Our battle isn't against flesh and blood either. That's why the armor that the Messiah donned is the same spiritual armor that the body of Christ is called to wear as well. And so, just to reiterate one more time, we're given this messianic profile in the Old Testament. We're told in the New Testament that this Messiah is in fact Jesus. And what Paul decides to do in his letter to the Romans is he decides to make it clear to us that Jesus and this Old Testament Messiah figure, they're the same guy. <laughs> and he also wants to make it clear that, you know, the armor that the Messiah had, well, guess what? Jesus, who is that Messiah, he still has that armor on. He's still rocking it. He still utilizes that messianic armor. Don't believe me? Well, let's take a look. Romans 13, verse 12 through 14. Paul says this, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Notice, no, notice the language of putting off and putting on. And remember, in Ephesians, Paul tells us to put off our old self and to put on our new self. So we, we have that continuity there of getting rid of the old and the dark and putting on the new, the light. But focus in on exactly what Paul tells the Romans to put off and on. He tells them first to cast off, to put off darkness and to not just put on light, but to put on the armor of light. Interesting. And you may ask the question, what exactly is the armor of light? Well, in anticipation of you asking that question, Paul clarifies what he means by saying in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's equating the putting on of Jesus 
with the putting on of his armor. The armor of light is what we are able to put on because we put on Christ. Paul is telling us that once we cast off our old dark self and our old ways of walking in darkness, we are going to need to fill that darkness with light first and foremost. And we're going to need some armor in order to protect ourselves from the attacks of evil and darkness. But the armor doesn't just come from anywhere. Paul's not just talking about some metaphorical armor. It comes specifically from the Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah, who the prophet Isaiah built this entire profile of. He he told us that this Messiah would be wearing this armor. And to further prove what Paul is saying, he makes sure to tell us that we need to put on Jesus. And with putting on Jesus comes the armor of light that he is already wearing. This is what Paul is trying to relay to the Ephesians and to anyone else who reads his letter, is that in order to put on the armor of God, you must first cast off your old self and put on your new self. And you can only put on your new self if you are putting on Jesus Christ. And the armor that so many of us marvel over comes as a package deal because Jesus is already wearing that armor because he is the Messiah that Isaiah foretold about. And when you take this understanding and apply it to what Paul says in this letter and many others about all of us being members of the full body of Christ, I mean, my goodness, it it blows your mind. And this is why I said in the last episode that the armor of God is not an individual endeavor. It's meant to be something that the entire body of Christ puts on as a singular community. Because you individually are not the body of Christ. You're you're a part of it, but you're not the full body of Christ. It's you and all the other members combined, unified, that makes up the body of Christ. And once we are actually a part of the full body of Christ and we put on Christ collectively, that is when the armor that Christ is already wearing comes with it. Dude, I'm telling you, the the Bible is so cool, man. The Bible is so awesome and it is communicating with each other across centuries and centuries and books and authors and time periods and in context. It is absolutely astounding what God's living and breathing word is able to communicate with us when we just take the time to read it. I hope you enjoyed this these episodes on the armor of God, and we'll continue on with the rest of Ephesians 6 next week.